Welcome to episode 198 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Mark Hislop. In recent episodes, we have talked to David Gray, an economist who was around and part of the team that developed the Alberta's wholesale electricity market back in oh, the mid-90s. And we've also talked to Joe Anglin, a former uh, MLA who opposed building out high-voltage transmission lines. And what we tried to do with these interviews is provide context for the, the current debate around how the Alberta electricity system is going to double or triple its generating capacity over the next uh, 30 years as we you know electrify everything as part of the energy transition. And these, these uh, interviews were very well received. We've had a lot of feedback from them. And one of the folks who reached out is Gary Holden. He's a former CEO of NMAX, the Calgary uh, city of Calgary owned utility. And he's now CEO of New Zealand based Lodestone Energy. It's a solar power, uh, power generation, energy retailing and financial services company. So welcome to the interview, Gary. Oh, thank you. Uh, glad to be here, Mark. This is fascinating. Uh, electricity systems are inherently, intrinsically complex. And the public conversation around them, often poorly informed, ill-informed, a lot of misinformation right now floating around Alberta about how the whole thing works, the role of wind and solar and storage in them. So maybe for this interview, uh, we could go back and, and revisit some of the ground that I covered with David and Joe, but from your perspective, and maybe let's start with the design, uh, the decision uh, by then Premier Ralph Klein to deregulate Alberta's, uh, the generation, the, uh, the generation of electricity in Alberta, uh, bring in a, a market system, a wholesale market, and I understand that you had uh, gone from the Canadian, you were working in Alberta uh, in the power sector, you went to New Zealand, uh, which deregulated its its uh, markets as well, and then came back and brought some of those ideas with you to Alberta. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, my, uh, my early history with uh, deregulation started in 1992, and I uh, led a team of people while I was working for Transalta uh, to to build the first two independent power plants in New Zealand. And and part of the opening up of uh, that market to us was to deregulate and create a wholesale market. And I, at the time, was invited by the, by the go uh, government to sit on their market design committee where, um, you know, I had a chance to cut my teeth on issues of consumer choice, transition, uh, transmission pricing methodologies, smart metering roadmaps, and and ultimately the half hourly pricing of the in the wholesale market that uh, that we know is now in Alberta. I I did come back uh, and and you know taking all of that experience back to Alberta in the end of the decade, and uh, when I ran Transalta's uh, coal and hydro fleet and ushered us ushered Transalta into the deregulation in Alberta. And it'd be interesting for your listeners to know that the. Um, the market design that was created in New Zealand in the early part of that decade was essentially a, a, a exactly picked up and used in Alberta at the, by the end of the decade. And so my personal experience was quite, quite fantastic to have the ability to see those same rules implemented in two different places. 
What do you make of David Gray's argument that the design of that market was flawed to begin with and the way to fix the current problems? Because Alberta, uh, Dave argues that uh, economic withholding by the, the big generators like Transelta would be one of them. Uh, has resulted in a doubling of electricity prices uh, in the last couple of years. And basically, economic withholding is when the generators uh, withhold some of their generation uh, in order to create a scarcity in the wholesale market, which drives prices up. It's an artificial, artificially keeping the prices up. So they may sell less of less electricity, but they sell it at a higher at a higher price, and therefore they make a lot more money. What what do you make of that argument? I, I I know what I know what his argument is, and uh, and in both both uh, markets, uh, New Zealand and and Alberta, and I think it's also true in places like Texas and the UK and Australia. Um, doing that kind, acting in that way is essentially illegal, and so you you have rules that um, you know the market surveillance group would be um, very interested in finding out that someone was economically withholding on purpose because it. It's essentially against the market rules, and it, and I think it has happened uh, in the past in Alberta, and fines have been levied, and those sorts of things do happen. But that's not the reason the prices are high now. There's a very fundamental reason why the prices are high, and it has has quite a lot to do with um, the the decisions that were made in the 2009, 2010, 2011 timeframe. Oh, uh, please explain those to us. I'm <laughs> I'm all ears. Well, the there's there's a couple. It's a as you said, electricity is very complex, and it's a it's a bit of a shaggy dog story to kind of try and tell the whole thing. But there are, there are two fundamental reasons why electricity prices are high in Alberta, and one of them is um, there was an excessive amount of transmission, and I think you have talked about that on your show in the past, and. And that excessive amount of transmission um, and and how it happened um, is is probably one of the the biggest black marks on the evolution of the market in Alberta. But the the uh, so it's the transmission costs are 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 multiples above what they should be, and then also the um, the one characteristic of a wholesale electricity market that's that's uh, that you have to pay attention to when you design a market is what what are the what is the cost structure of the marginal generator and the marginal generator in Alberta uh, is essentially a gas plant and it's either uh, a gas plant in the in the design of the Shepherd plant in Calgary or it's um, an old coal plant that was built in the 70s or the or, or 80s that was converted to gas. And the less efficient those marginal plants are, the higher the electricity price is for consumers. And so the um, so that the the idea that you have on the margin very poor efficiency gas plants consumers are playing paying for, you then add a carbon cost to that. It makes it worse, and then you um, and then you build in the fact that. Uh, the uh, the margin is made up of several coal converted plants, um, and that of course uh, means that they're because they're on boilers that were designed for coal, they run they run flat out all the time, and so you can't build in the flexibility in the market to introduce more solar and more wind. And I guess we should point out for for listeners that it's the marginal producer that sets the market cost. 
Correct. So, so the least efficient gas plant is the one that everyone pays for. Right. So, just if if we can give an example of this, and and I'll I'll provide a hypothetical, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, or explain in more detail. But l- let's say that the uh, wind and solar and natural gas are coming in at around you know four cents a kilowatt hour, five cents, six cents, seven cents. But you've got these these old converted uh, coal plants running on gas that are coming in at 10, 11, 12 cents, they're the, the price for the entire market, what everybody gets is the 10 or 11 or 12 cents. Correct. And so the the market design, the people that are really concerned about getting the market design correct are driving the investment to be the most efficient marginal. So the if, for example, if all of the coal plants that were converted to gas were built on the model of the Shepherd Power Plant in Calgary, the electricity price in Alberta would be auto, almost automatically 30% less. Okay. What what does the Shepherd plant, uh, how much is a megawatt hour or kilowatt hour of electricity that's generated by Shepherd? Well, it, uh, it, it, it is a big, uh, it, is, it is a function of two things, the gas price and the, the carbon cost. And so the, um, the two together, um, you know, if gas prices are around uh, four or five dollars a, uh, a gigajoule, then um, the electricity uh, marginal electricity price out of that plant would be, uh, you know, something like, um, uh, you know, uh, 50 or 60 dollars uh, a megawatt hour. So it's uh, or five cents or six cents. And then and then whatever carbon costs get kind of put on top of that. And so you you, you need the marginal marginal price of the most efficient plant to be setting the price, not the least efficient price. And, and I think that's what competition was always intended to do. If Shepard put competitive pressure on the uh, the coal plants to also convert to the same efficiency, then the market would be a whole lot more efficient overall. Listening to you, I come away with the impression that the carbon tax is a significant contributor to the high cost of electricity. Is that the case? Well, there's there's uh, there's two kinds of carbon taxes. I'm pretty pretty sure that you know this, Mark, but I'll just quickly describe it for everyone who's listening. That the uh, there is a carbon cost that goes on emitters, and then that that cost gets built into what they bid into the half hour market. Um, and then there's a carbon tax people talk about that gets levied on end users. And so um, so it um, to me, I'm a I'm a big fan of making sure the carbon cost is um is built into the market but uh you don't necessarily need need also a carbon tax on the end user because you've already built the carbon cost into the electricity price and so uh when you design a market getting that carbon cost is in there is important because that's how you that's the tool you use to make sure that you make a good decision about which technology you build and in other words if you were had if you had the choice to spend uh, capital on a conversion of a an old coal plant, and the carbon cost was higher than with a plant like Shepherd, then that should in in theory lead you towards building more Shepherds and less uh, coal conversions. A bit of context for our listeners, especially those who are outside of of Canada. 
Um, in Alberta, there is an industrial emitters carbon tax, which is called TIER, T-I-E-R, and it's administered by the province. And uh, so that's the, the carbon cost that you're talking about. And then there's a consumer carbon tax. So essentially, Gary, I guess what you're saying is that there people are being paying two carbon taxes, uh, though, in fairness, the... Um, the uh, the consumer carbon tax consumers get a rebate on carbon taxes so in that is intended to offset uh, for especially for lower income uh, consumers yeah and i think i think the most brilliant way to handle the the uh, the tax or the cost on generators is to make the best available technology which was the shepherd power plant um, free of a carbon cost. So in other words, the best available technology sets the baseline. And then anything that's worse or less efficient than a shepherd, then they add the carbon cost. And, um, and then, uh, then, you, then you have the incentive to build more shepherds and less coal conversions. Isn't that the way the NDP had set up the carbon capture, uh, carbon uh, CCIR. I, I forget what the acronym says, but but it's the predecessor to TIER. So it's the which and CCIR was the predecessor was the successor to uh, Seeger SGER, which was brought in in two thousand and seven. But the but the point I'm getting at here is that CCIR actually there was a uh, a baseline. Uh, an industry best baseline that that uh, set the uh, the tax. And then when the UCP brought in the uh, tier, they did away with that. And they went to facility specific instead of industry best practice. Have I got that right? Yeah, you got that right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the where, it went, where it went wrong was whatever the signal that came through to the decision makers who converted coal to gas, they they decided to not use best available technology. And I think that's that's when the government should have intervened and said, hold on, the signals aren't working. We're gonna we're gonna put something else in place that says um, you really need to go to best available technology and and the reason that is so important, Mark, is because best available technology is fundamental and critical to getting wind and solar into the market. You need those combined cycle shepherd like assets to invite more wind and solar because they can flexibly adapt to the ebbing and flowing of wind and solar energy. Okay, well that makes that makes sense because the is it fair to say Gary uh that dispatchable power firm power that you know comes out of a gas plant uh comes out of hydro anything that you can dispatch that's not intermittent has a higher value a uh, higher per uh value uh, per megawatt hour value than uh, the intermittent power. Yeah, yeah, I think the the you know the term used uh, often is firming because the uh, the a shepherd can ramp up and down as the wind blows and shepherd can turn on when the sun stops shining. And so you end up with assets all over the province. There would be a scattering of shepherds in in an ideal market design that slowly over time kind of work themselves out of business as more solar and wind come in. And then you get uh, you get a, quite a large difference between how much solar and wind is in the market just by that one decision to go uh, to combined cycle plants. So if, if you had these really high efficient uh, natural gas combined cycle power plants like Shepard, which uh, again for listeners is 850 megawatts of generating capacity, so it's quite large, and, and you had a number of them scattered around, 
And the, then the ideal design of the, of the system would be the gas plants, plenty of solar and wind and storage, but there will always be times, particularly in, you know, when it's 40 below in Alberta, which is not uncommon, then when, let's say, the wind isn't blowing and in the evening sun isn't shining, but you'd have this these plants that could then ramp up to full capacity and provide security for the system, reliability and, and resilience for the system. That's that is correct. And then the other the other component, and I I, I think I think uh, we should maybe segue uh, to this. The other component to to uh, converting to a hundred percent renewable energy is to um, is to create more integration between British Columbia and Alberta, so that as the gas plant uh, uh, and solar and wind interplay goes on, you also start to lean more heavily on the uh, flexibility of the BC hydro system. And so, um, you know, if there ever was uh, the need for transmission in Alberta, and we know, you know the whole story about transmission is uh, is quite well storied now, but but the, if there ever was a need for transmission, it really should have been to, to connect Alberta west, not try to um, ship power from Alberta all the way down to California. And so the uh, so the the perfect solution. If you could if you could stand back and and make a perfect decision right now, it would be something like building a transmission line from Site C in in BC right into Edmonton, and then and then use the uh, the that door into this massive hydro storage capacity to effectively wean Alberta off of fossil fuel. Yeah, I, I get it for listeners, a little context. So uh, in Western Canada, there is British Columbia on the West Coast, then Alberta, then Saskatchewan, then Manito Manitoba. Both Manitoba and BC are hydro provinces and both have enormous hydro resources. Uh, both of them are almost 100% uh, hydro. And Manitoba actually has some capacity to continue growing. BC, not, not as much. And it has this Site C dam, which is 1,100 megawatts of generating capacity that'll be finished construction in a couple of years. And the argument has been made, and I interviewed economist Kent Hare, uh, sorry, not Kent Hare, uh, Kent Fellows of the University of Calgary about this. And he he said that, you know, all hydro uh, is, if that that power is so valuable as a firming megawatt hour that the best what you just described is the is the best way to use all of the hydro instead of just selling it like i live in british columbia i pay nine and a half cents a kilowatt hour uh, which is very low uh, in canada and he said instead of just selling the hydropower to consumers like me it should be used at, as this you know east to facilitate east-west trade in electricity where uh both Saskatchewan and, and Alberta generate a lot of wind and solar. There's trade east and west, and the hydro resources are used to firm those up so that you get that really valuable hydropower coupled with the really low cost per megawatt hour of wind and solar. And that would be both low cost and and robust and, and resilient. Yeah, in fact, you, you're striking on the exact... Uh, if I, if you were to write the regulatory roadmap from this day forward, it would be to uh, repatriate the export, the exportation of electricity to the United States from British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, Manitoba, bring it back um, slowly. It would take a long time to do this, but you bring it back slowly to effectively power the electric cars in those provinces plus um, 
feed the adjacent province some firming capacity. And Alberta and BC should be one market, in effect. And uh, and if it was, and and you know, you could write a roadmap that's pretty easy to get there, um, where Alberta and BC work together, Saskatchewan and Manitoba work together, uh, Quebec works with New Brunswick. Ontario is pretty well sorted. They can kind of convert to 100% renewable electricity on their own. And then you've got 100% renewable Canada. Yeah. And, and the reason why that hasn't happened, for the reason so many things don't happen, is politics. And that's grist for another another episode. We won't, yes. we won't belabor it. We won't belabor it. Yeah, here. but, you know, you know, I agree. I agree. It's a political thing. And it's always been a political thing. And, of course, uh Politics can't seem to find uh, it a way to stay away from electricity, but but it it can. It's it's all to me. It's you know the experience I had in New Zealand and the experience I've had now uh, through Alberta is it's all incremental decisions have to be made. They don't have to be big decisions. Some of them are big decisions, but they don't have to be big decisions. But they need to have kind of their eye on the prize. And then the, with the eye on the prize, you can make incremental decisions that aren't too political and get there slowly over time. Right. You need a you need a vision. Then you need a roadmap to get there. Things like building east west inner ties, market design, all of that stuff. Yeah. And exactly. when you yeah when you've got that, then you can build the political will to to put it into place. And we haven't even done the basics. But yeah, I mean, it's just one. It's, it starts with just one transmission line. And then it starts with another one, and then it starts with a decision on coal, and then it, and so on. Yeah. Well, speaking of politics, we have uh, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith's seventh month wind and solar moratorium, which was announced roughly a month ago. What do you make of that? Well, I think it's I'm I'm worried I'd be worried about it because you know moratoriums are pretty dramatic. It's pretty dramatic language, and uh, it it it's 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 uh, it kind of reeks of panic. And it uh, it doesn't seem to be um, it doesn't seem to have a plan behind it. It seems to be more let's just stop what we're doing and then maybe we'll just extend the moratorium when when we feel like it later. And so it is it is it should worry everyone that's kind of interested in this long term view that Canada can be 100 percent renewable electricity. And um, and so it, it needs to be uh, addressed. Uh, somebody needs to stand up and say, Hold on. Um, there are a few decisions you can make to reverse the um, things that went on in 2010, 2011. Uh, you can you can actually grab a hold of this issue. Um, I think she needs to surround herself with people with that vision. She doesn't seem to um, to she seems compelled to continue to to go to the same sources of information that Stelmac did back in uh, 2010. Right. And, and I, I would argue that, you know, I mean, she's making she and her uh, her right hand guy in her office, uh, Rob Anderson, a former MLA and lawyer, uh, have come out with comments about the electricity system that are just goofy. I mean, they you know, there's they're they're back in 20 year old arguments about how, you know, wind and solar are unreliable and can't be integrated and will crash the whole system. And they make un really crazy claims about the cost of switching to, to wind and solar. You know, they, the, the premier said it would the cost by 2050 would be 200 billion to 400 billion. And the uh, the Alberta electricity system operator uh, did a study, you know, like last year. That said, the cost would only be forty-four to fifty-two billion. It would ninety percent of it would be paid for by the private sector because you're building new power generation. I mean, this kind of misinformation 
coming out of the government is really concerning because the this industry like like the oil and gas needs rules right there needs to be yeah. certainty there needs to be rules there needs to be policy that puts those rules into place it needs to be stable and it needs their and investors and players inside the the system need to know that when they're making investments in these 50 year assets like whatever it is a solar farm or a gas plant that they can count on that and yeah. this kind of decision making just throws that into a tizzy yeah and it's 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 quite it's quite irresponsible if i may say to to sum up the capital cost of um conversion to 100% renewable without without and and disclosing that number as if somehow that's going to land on consumers um the only the only type of cost that really lands on consumers are the backbone infrastructure like transmission. All of the energy decisions, like you know, I'm, I'm building eight hundred million dollars worth of solar farms in New Zealand, and we're selling it to customers, and the customers choose to buy the power from my company, um, and and not pay another company in a competitive choice. That doesn't mean they're they're having to shoulder eight hundred million dollars worth of capital on the market. The market is designed so that you could do a transition on the energy side of the equation without any additional cost to consumers. In fact, the world is now proving that as we transition to one hundred percent renewable, that consumers are actually getting cheaper power, not more expensive. Now, I, I want to talk. You were uh, you left C, uh, Nmax as CEO in 2011 and you've moved out to or you're working in in new zealand and have done for a while uh and i want to talk about your career there and how things are going give you you can give a, our listeners a, a sort of flavor about what's going on in new zealand but you and i before we started the interview i was telling you that you know the per one of the the purposes behind this energy talks podcast was to interview experts outside of Canada because the energy transition in the US, in Europe, in Asia Pacific is has accelerated to such a degree. I mean, the, the current energy system is being disrupted at a crazy pace. I mean, what's going on in the American uh, uh, electricity sector is just mind blowing how quickly they're modernizing their grid and they're integrating wind and solar and changing market design. And it, I mean, it's from top to bottom it's like a it's like renovating an old house in a month uh, <laughs> and and but you need to be outside of canada or paying attention to what's going on outside of canada to really appreciate that and so few canadian people who talk in the public sphere are doing are paying attention so give us your perspective on the accelerating energy transition from where you sit in your role as a you know head of a new zealand company yeah, well, you know, I I have uh, with this thirty years now of dealing with deregulated markets, uh, I've you know you can boil the 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 blueprint of pure transition to pure renewable energy through three comments. And when the first one is, and this is this is maybe my first lesson I learned in New Zealand back in the nineteen nineties was you really first of all have to engage consumers. You have to let consumers make the choice. And, um, you know, it's as simple as uh, it ultimately boils down to something as simple as would you like to buy your power from a coal plant or would you like to buy your power from a wind farm or a solar farm and let consumers make that decision? Because then 
then they're, it's like a de democratic way of creating a transition. And, and so you need to design consumer and decision-making capability and give them the information to make that decision. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you need to have, you need to use some technology. You have to have really good smart metering technology. You have to have big data warehouses where information is shared. Um, a, slight, a slight aside here, uh, in New Zealand, we're able to um, build a solar farm sell the power from a solar farm and reconcile with a consumer's meter every half an hour um, through a data dump that comes in at midnight every day and show them how much of the energy they get from a solar farm. And, and that kind of decision or that kind of technology needs to be there. And Alberta, unfortunately, um, you know, when I was at NMAX, I, I put a lot of effort into trying to convert the market to a smart metering market. And and the Department of Energy at the time under Team Team Stelmac just wasn't interested and were lobbied by others to not do that. And so that was a real critical turning point to move away from technology in that regard. Then, then at the uh, generation end, you, you need to have the wholesale market the way that it is. You need to have incentives for, for efficiency. You need to be able to... Um, to demonstrate the uh, the value of electricity at night and the value of electricity in the peak period and the value uh, in the daytime and and expose and create transparency around all those aspects and then and then finally you need to have a transmission system that sends a super strong signal to locate generation near the demand try to try to try to make the there's no point in in converting to 100% renewable energy and then wasting billions of dollars on useless transmission lines because it's the it's the uh, the signals you're sending to get that energy distributed that allows you to become 100% renewable and that saves money on transmission and so having a really clear transmission policy is maybe the most important thing and transmission pricing methodologies have have been tried in every country and it's a very sophisticated thing, but fundamentally, uh, in in New Zealand, we have nodal pricing. We actually have a electricity prices cleared in 286 locations to send the signal of where generation should be and how much value it has to the market if it's located in a specific spot, and then the uh, transmission build is is optimized from there. So it's it's really getting those three things right, and the the generation side in Alberta is kind of messed up because the coal conversion was not to the right gas plant, and uh, the the political will just doesn't seem to be there at this stage. And I think um, if you if you could if you could put the brakes on, if you called a moratorium, and if she stood, if Daniel Smith stood up and said, you know what, I'm calling a moratorium so I can redesign and maybe go back. 10 years and kind of retrace some steps. If, if she said that, that would be brilliant because that would mean that Alberta could then put in a roadmap that uh, took them to 100% renewable in a very reasonable amount of time. Yes, gotcha. Um, There's a lot to unpack in the in the comments you made. Um, and, but I, 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 I introduced this topic by talking about your experience in New Zealand and your perception of the energy transition outside of Canada. And, and I still want to get your take on that. Yeah, I think so. So New Zealand is kind of the gold standard in my mind, because we, um, we started out with the right market design. We, we, we had all those things in mind. We had smart metering in mind. We had nodal pricing in mind. We had 
uh, a pretty good concept of how transmission pricing methodology should work. And so, so it, it was off to a good start. And so, you know, it's a, it's a great, it's a kind of a great joy to me to be involved, you know, third, now 30 years in writing those rules and, and now building a business to take advantage of them and get renewable energy to consumers. But New Zealand's not the only place that has figured this out. There are many countries that are now getting this, um, this general idea sorted where you can, can phase out fossil fuel, you give it a bit of a boost by putting a carbon tax in place to kind of tell everyone what's really important. Getting rid of carbon is important and avoiding those costs is important. And, and then having consumer choice and market and market rules um, create that transition. And, and New Zealand may be the gold standard, but it's not the only places getting it right. I, I would say at the other end of the spectrum are places like Alberta that seem to be fighting it every step of the way. What about what's going on in, in Asia Pacific, specifically China? Uh, from your perspective in New Zealand, I mean, you know, when I talk to Albertans about this, they always focus on China's uh, use of coal, its consumption of coal. And they ignore the fact that China is is integrating huge amounts of renewable energy, not just wind and solar and storage, but also hydro and and uh, and in doing it at a at a pace that is just mind boggling. Uh, and it seems like so. What's you what's your take about what's going on in Asia Pacific? Well, I, I feel I feel for China. You know, China watched the Western world develop. Um, and, and develop and create a middle class uh, all through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And we built coal plants to make that happen because we we didn't have we didn't have any uh, other alternatives. Um, wind wasn't possible. Solar was still you know uh, constrained to the space program. And so there was a there was a lot of technological evolution that had to go on. And China is absolutely leading the way they make the most number of electric cars they put in the most they put up the most solar panels they're supplying the world gigawatts of, of solar a day while they're also building gigawatts of solar themselves and so it's a bit rich for us in the western world to um, shake our finger at them when they have to um, backfill a little bit uh, to get their middle class up and running and and build a coal plant here and there i i don't i don't I don't believe for a minute that they're they're doing anything that's excessive. I think they do precisely what they need to do to get the manufacturing running. Um, you know, they're supplying the world with uh, everything from uh, shoes to lawn chairs, and so they 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 have factories all over that country satisfying our insatiable need for junk, and so. We can't we can't shake our finger at them uh, at all in my mind. I think they uh, they're doing absolutely everything they can, and and thank goodness too because they um, they're the ones that found a way to get solar to be cheaper than than fossil fuel, and uh, and they're the ones that created the economies of scale. They have they have a mini monopoly now. You know something like ninety five percent of the world's solar panels are made in China. But, but good on them. That was their innovation. Uh, America and, and other parts of the world had a chance to do that as well. Um, but they did it. And, and I think uh, they, should be, they should be congratulated for that. They will also uh, be able to wean themselves off of fossil fuel. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's sort of doing what you can do yourself. And uh, we know the Western world can do it. We know that we have the technology to do it. We've got the brain power to write market rules. 
And I think it's just incumbent on us to do our part and uh, and get after it as soon as possible. I'm fond of saying that uh, clean electricity systems, uh, you know, clean, low cost, reliable, abundant uh, electricity is the foundation of the 21st century economy. And if you don't have that, you're not set up uh, for the energy transition and this, you know, this transition away from uh, from uh, oil and gas in in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, so having and that's not well under that's not well understood, uh, but China certainly understands it, and they have spent the last twenty years ish uh, innovating in this space, became technology leaders, uh, manufactured at scale, uh, adopted at scale, and now basically Europe and North America are playing catch up. And in fact, North America is playing catch up to Europe. You know, really, I mean, the, uh, it's 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 fascinating to me to watch. Uh, the Americans talk about this because I interview American utilities all executives all the time through the the, the uh, tech uh, press briefing panels that I sit on for the U.S. Energy Association, and and they get it the fact that you know they kind of were asleep at the switch uh, while China was doing this, and then when Europe started doing it, and now America, you know, we've got this new industrial revolution around clean energy technology, clean energy industry. And America's not number one. They're not even number two. They no. might be number three. No. And they, they they run into the same incumbency problem where the incumbents try to defend their patch and keep their old their technology running. Uh, look, I, I can give I can give you what I think is kind of a fun mental exercise to play. Um, if, if you just go to go to a place like Alberta, actually, I'm going to start with Canada. First of all, Canada exports so much hydro to the U.S. that you, if you repatriated all of the hydro we export to the U.S., you could um, you could fill every Canadian electric car. Every Canadian could have an electric car with that juice. Um, the math is there. Yeah, I can I can show you the math. But effectively, we have enough hydro in Canada for every single person to drive an electric car. Now this is when a lot of people get all upset because they say I don't want an electric car. I got to you know I got to go to my my cabin at the lake and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. But fundamentally, if you want to think big picture, there is enough hydro in Canada to supply everyone with electric car. The second thing is you go to a place like Alberta, you could you could build three shepherds, very strategically located shepherds one transmission line to site C in BC, maybe another transmission line around to reinforce the Southern link uh, uh, down by the Crow's Nest Pass, start to repatriate the hydro that's being sold to America and sell it to Alberta. And, And then the rest of the Alberta system could probably be solar and wind. And you could, those three decisions and, and, the electricity price would fall to the same price as it is for you in BC. So you get a cheaper price, a few key decisions, capital cost efficiency through very minimal transmission build, and then, and then a little bit of gas to, uh, to reinforce the system when uh, those times uh, are where there's a coincident uh, shortfall of solar and wind. And then, and then, then when you see that picture, you'd be able to say, well, geez, maybe we can actually put in a few batteries here and there and get rid of one of those gas plants. And then that, and then, then you're down to two gas plants. And then and then someone says, geez, we got some new battery technology. We're sitting there in the year 2038. And someone says, well, well, I've got a new battery that could do something even better. And then we get rid of the, 
the 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 second last gas plant. And then there will be this glorious moment at some point in the year 2040 something where the final gas plant retires and Alberta is 100% renewable electricity. And all you really have to do is start by making two or three very important decisions at the beginning. I I want to bring up something. You've talked about incumbents a couple of times in the course of this interview. And I'm currently writing a column about the incumbency dilemma. And, and that is, and I'm, I'm specifically applying it to oil and gas. So the incumbency dilemma is when a new technology has come along, they disrupt the incumbent's business model. So, you know, electric vehicles, essentially the, the world's automakers have looked at provinces like Alberta and they've said, we don't like your product anymore. We don't want your oil. We're, we like the electricity that's, and we're shifting wholesale from uh, gasoline and diesel and over to electricity. So we're going to decide what consumers, what kind of vehicles consumers get. So the if you're an oil and gas company and you're looking at that and you're going, okay, uh, my business model is disrupted. Now I have to pivot to something else. I have to build a low carbon business model. And it's not immediately clear, particularly for, for Alberta companies, what that low carbon business model is. And frankly, they're not interested in, in building it at this point. They're, they're kind of hoping the status quo will go on for decades and, and they'll be fine. So, but there's also an incumbency issue in the power sector. And it's quite a little bit different because here, it seems to me, the, the utilities and the, there is a pivot to a low carbon business model. They can build wind and, and solar and they can do and and they can install storage and they can get into hydrogen they can get i mean there's a lot that, that they can do that the oil and company oil and gas companies don't have an opportunity to do and yeah. yet they're really really reluctant they just are moving at this they're, they're at a snail's pace and you worked for one of those incumbents and max and also another one which is transelta give me your view of the incumbency dilemma well, it's 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 starkly simple. Um, if you uh, if you've got a balance sheet full of full of assets that a disruptor is chipping away at, you you either pivot like you said and compete head on. Like like the the incumbents in Alberta had a choice to build shepherds. They could have they could have um, instead of converting the old nineteen uh, seventies boilers into into gas burning boilers they could have said you know what let's get some shiny new combined cycle plants they could have chosen to do that and then the balance sheet will have new technology and they compete head to head and in that future where they kind of um you know run into competition from solar and wind happens but they just they just you know it's kind of like uh, let's get one more generation of people through without having to concede that we need to give in to that competition and that disruption. NMAX was a disruptor. We, we, uh, we went from 18% market share to 44% market share with the sole idea, and this is the, this is the education I got on my, my journey, journey to New Zealand the first time, was that the, if you get the consumer's heart and mind, and we grabbed 44% of the Alberta market, I was pretty sure then through our easy max evolutions uh, that we could convert people to solar and wind eventually. And uh, it just got stopped because the incumbents have power, they have political power, the politics at the time were very much in favor of defending the, the status quo. Um, there's a fear in Alberta politics 
um, that somehow if we introduce disruption in technology that that we'll somehow lose whatever it was that we gained in the 70s and 80s uh, through through the development of oil. But fundamentally, those ideas, you know, coal plants, um, you know, coal, coal was pumping out. It's a bloody good thing we got rid of coal in Alberta because it was pumping out. I think the total was 60,000 kilograms of mercury had landed on Alberta soil in the period of coal. And and it was, you know, you can't eat the fish and it was causing people to get sick. And, I, and so it's good that we got rid of coal, but we didn't do that other thing and allow the introduction of renewable energy completely. And I think these are the these are the issues that politicians really should be spending their time on, not not how do I you know make arguments that uh, defend the status quo and and keep tying back the prosperity of the province to something that was going on 25 years ago. It's time to turn the prosperity conversation into into how do we be, how do we attain prosperity and use new technology to to get us to a better place. Uh, I have a, a a question for you about um, market disruption in Alberta. And uh, earlier in the in the interview, I referred to this uh, report that came out uh, last year, and and I actually it was a I said it was ASO Alberta Electricity System Operator. In fact, it was the Alberta Utilities Commission. It was a the a AUC. But in 2021, ASO came out with a study that they had done two years of consultations about changes that were coming uh, in the uh, electricity system, particularly around transmission and distribution. And here's the thing that really stuck out. It was the, the fear, the palpable fear of the incumbents that their big customers, because 87% of electricity in Alberta is consumed by industrial and big commercial industrial and commercial customers. Uh, so but there's so there's lots and lots of big industry. It could be refineries, could be petrochemicals, could be all sorts of that kind of industry in Alberta. The big uh, wind and solar now, combined with storage, are enabling big consumers to self-generate. Hmm. They don't have to be connected to the grid. And yeah. the, and the, 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 the terror in the, that underlie, if you read between the lines, that these big customers over the next well, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years are going to, to migrate away from the grid so that then the, the transmission costs, the grid costs, are then going to have, have, have to be paid by those who remain behind. That's a, the incumbents were, that's a big issue for them. And you don't hear a lot, you don't hear any discussion of that uh, in the, the media. I did a column on it when, in an interview with, with uh, ASO when the study came out. But that it's more in Alberta, it seems to be more about hanging on to what you had than it is about, okay, you know, technology is transforming the power sector globally. How then do we get out in front of that plan for it so that it, you know, we, it's the best possible adaptation at the least cost possible cost and the best service to our, our customers. Am I off base here? Oh God. yeah, I know you're. It, it's it, I'm I'm chuckling because, um, you know, if you had the fear that you might end up with some stranded assets, the first thing you should do is not build any more that could be stranded. And uh, you know, here's here's that same group that were more than willing to support spending 14 billion dollars on a couple of transmission lines that have no purpose whatsoever. And so they, while they're while they have this fear, they don't seem to act on the fear. And and it's quite it's quite 
it's quite if it wasn't so sad it would be quite hilarious because they they really should be thinking about transmission is still really important you know if you listen to this conversation we've been having it's a very sophisticated interplay between hydro and solar and wind and customers and metering and matching and demand control and sending signals to load shed and sending signals to plug in your car at the right time of day and a very sophisticated execution of transmission and distribution technology and the wires themselves. And so if, if I was if I was thinking about NMAX or I was thinking about uh, AltaLink, I would be thinking, how do we minimize the capital and maximize our utilization? Because transmission and distribution are part of this competitive environment. If someone is going to self-generate, then be more efficient as a transmission grid. Don't just throw up your hands and say, well, I'm just going to convert everything to fixed costs, then I don't have to worry. You actually have to have a strategy that says transmission and distribution are part of the competitive landscape. We are competing with, ability, with the ability of people to go off-grid or partially off-grid, but that's a good thing because then we'll minimize our capital and remain competitive. And I think that that that's Alberta may be the worst example that I've ever seen of fighting that notion that transmission and distribution are part of the equation. Again, getting back to the incumbency dilemma, I want to wrap up our conversation, uh, Gary, with an observation from watching the Americans and interviewing American uh, experts. And, and that is that, you know, we talk about wind, solar and storage as if that was the only technology that is revolutionizing the power sector, the global power sector, but it's not. There are all sorts of technologies that I don't like, you know, I can, my, my dad worked for Manitoba Hydro. I work for Manitoba Hydro. I tell the story all the time back in the seventies in the Radisson converter station in, Man, in Northern Manitoba, you know, and so I was kind of in, uh, had a little bit of a connection to some of that stuff. And it's, it's enormously complex, but the, the point here that I'm trying to, I'm getting to is that they, there's a whole new generation of technologies that is, is, pushing out the old and, and 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 really flattening the old vertically integrated utility model and they were, we're talking and they're talking in the US about like utilities becoming you know platforms for distributed energy resources and the trading of of services energy services that sort of thing and and we were talking about grid technologies smart grid technologies where you can get more power on the existing grid system i mean there are artificial intelligence alone you mentioned data uh, and big analytics you know all of that stuff is going gangbusters uh outside of alberta in particular and it seems like alberta is instead of saying okay hey man we're being disrupted here we got we got to get on this and and redesign our re-engineer our business models and our system and and Alberta, as you say, you know, it just puts up its hands and, and it's looking to the provincial government to shield it from the powers of disruption, from the yeah. effects of disruption. Yeah. And disruption can be can be good and it, it can be bad, but it's 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 got to be allowed. And I think, you know, part of my history at NMAX was to stand up and say, look, we're going to waste 14 billion dollars on transmission. Let's use this more wisely and and effectively, you know, got canceled because of that. And I think the. The idea that disruption can be commercial, like uh, one of the great things we're doing in New Zealand now is we're developing a concept called virtual rooftop where a consumer can actually have 
you know, 27 panels in a farm 200 miles away that they own the capacity to as part of their electricity contract. And so they, the panels behave 20, 200 miles away as if they were on the roof of your house and having a big data um, network of information. So that is possible. An innovative energy retailer can execute that plan is part of disruption. And then the other part of disruption is just making sure that there is a leader at the top that gets it. There is a leader that says, you know what, I want to, I want Alberta to be as good as New Zealand, or I want Alberta to be as good as what I'm seeing in the very best places in Europe and, uh, and, and enable that because that then, you know, speaking of generational transfer of information and ideas that then sets up, you know, one generation, two generations down the road to, to turn Alberta advantage into something else. And otherwise it's going to come to some massive cliff. And uh, I think uh, I fear for that moment when, when, you know, the, the rhetoric you're hearing today just doesn't work anymore at all. And Alberta is just not able to adapt to what's going on. And it could be quite an ugly outcome. And so transition is important to think of well in advance. Um, you know, I think Alberta can learn from the rest of the world, uh, but it really does need to start with this, um, this idea that, yes, we can get Canada to 100% renewable energy and Alberta to 100% renewable energy. It just takes a plan. And uh, let people who can be disruptive be disruptive and open the regulatory mindset to uh, enable it all. Um, and I see that being very possible. I just hope that, um, you know, Albertans start to push for, for that kind of outcome. Final comment, I'll get you to uh, final. I'm going to make a, uh, an assertion, a hypothesis. I've already said it before, but I, I really want you to, to give me a kind of a yes or no, and then a little bit of explanation is, the the disruption at the the acceleration of the energy transition at the global level, I think we're both agreed that Alberta is uh, is not plugged into that, uh, and is is trying to hang on to the status quo as long as it can. But am I, am I right that in that hypothesis? Yeah, I mean it, it it the devil's in the detail in all these things, but you are definitely right that it looks like. Um, they made a, a massive, massive mistake with transmission in 2010. Consumers are paying seven, probably seven times what they should on transmission. They've made a massive mistake in not converting the coal plants into combined cycle plants. They made a, they made a massive mistake now in, um, in thwarting uh, the, the, the continuous development of solar and wind. But it's not too late to change that. It's not too late to say, right, we made those mistakes. Let's just do it differently now and bring in some thinking that that can enable that. They just they just seem compelled to not want to listen to what else is going on in the world. And uh, hopefully, hopefully they'll, um, you know, the more conversations like the one we're having today, Mark, uh, get out there. Maybe there'll be some penetration of that thinking into into the political uh, framework and. And maybe even Daniel Smith herself might say, you know what, I do think we should get some new thinking. And uh, I want to hear what that roadmap might look like. Um, maybe it'll happen. Uh, let's let's hope. Well, let, let's hope indeed. And and uh, a couple of podcasts ago, I, I interviewed Deborah Yeldon, who, Yedlin, sorry, 
who is the CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. And, and it was a, it was a much more enlightened conversation than I was expecting, to be honest. I, I think, you know, her organization uh, is starting to think in the right way, you know, about the energy transition and existential threats to, to Alberta. But I have to say that, and then, you know, there are pockets of that around in Alberta, like in Edmonton, for instance, you have some of that around hydrogen that, that's taking place and you have developers in Alberta who, who up until the moratorium where, where, you know, last year they brought in a, developed a, a gig, a gigawatt of uh, wind and solar into the market. This year they were, they were scheduled to do two, which is far more than, than anybody else in Canada. Uh, and that's all come to a crashing halt. So Alberta is not a monolith. It's a very complex place with complex politics and, and the complexity of the energy sy systems or the energy industry, which includes electricity as well as oil and gas is very complex, but it's, it's not running. It's, it's not world leading. It's not best in class. It's a far from that. And if uh, to be in uh, as the world changes, as the ener global energy system changes, if you're not best in class, uh, you're going to be left behind. So on that point, Gary, uh, I thank you very much for this. This is a fascinating conversation and an insight into what's going on in Alberta. Thank you for that. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, talk to you again soon sometime. Mm -hmm.